Hello dear listeners, whether you're just finding us or have been with us for a while, welcome. At Dreams and Crimes, we've got a treasure trove of stories waiting to be discovered. We like to describe them as a cosy blanket after a long day of work, or a ticket to a thrilling adventure before bed. If you're a long-time listener, thanks for sticking with us. Your support means the world. Want to take it up a notch? Consider subscribing to Dreams and Crimes on Apple Podcasts or YouTube. We're cooking up something special, turning these stories into videos. We've put a lot of efforts into them, and they're actually super good. And now, let's dive into today's story. The Toolbox Killers The 1970s were a notorious time for serial killers in the Los Angeles area. There was the Night Stalker, the Freeway Killer, the Hillside Strangler, and many others. However, one of the most vile and disgusting killings were perpetrated by the duel of Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. Lawrence Bittaker had experienced trouble with the law since he was 12 years old. By the age of 18, he had dropped out of school and spent time in the California Youth Authority for shoplifting, petty theft, auto theft, hit and run, and evading arrest. When he was released, he found that his adoptive parents had disowned him and moved to another state. Within days of being released, Bittaker was already in trouble with the law again. He was arrested for stealing a car and driving it across state lines. In August 1959, he was sentenced to prison for 10 months in Oklahoma and then transferred to Springfield, Missouri, but released the following year. Bittaker developed a pattern of getting arrested, getting released, and getting arrested again. Over the next 14 years, he was arrested at least six times for offenses ranging through parole violation, theft, leaving the scene of an accident, burglary, etc., During his incarceration, he was put through several psychological tests in which he was diagnosed as being borderline psychotic, a highly manipulative character, and having considerable concealed hostility. He was also found to have quite a high IQ of 138. Further examinations showed he was resistant to acknowledging his responsibility. Bittaker confided in his psychiatrist that his criminal activities gave him a sense of self-importance. He was prescribed antipsychotic medications. Finally, in 1974, Bittaker was caught stealing a steak from a supermarket. When the store clerk followed him into the parking lot to confront him, Bittaker stabbed him in the chest, just missing his heart. Bittaker ran but was subdued by two other supermarket employees. The clerk survived, and Bittaker was convicted of assault with a deadly weapon and sent to the California men's colony in San Luis Obispo. Roy Lewis Norris lived part of his childhood with his birth parents, but occasionally was passed around to various foster homes throughout Colorado, where he was a victim of sexual abuse by a Hispanic family he was living with. When he was 16, he made sexual references to a female relative. When he was punished for this, he stole his father's car and drove into the Rocky Mountains and attempted suicide by injecting air into his artery. 
He was caught by police as a runaway and returned home to the news that his parents were divorcing. They told him they were only married because of him and his younger sister, and they didn't want their children anyway. At 17, Norris dropped out of school and joined the U.S. Navy. At 21, he was sent to Vietnam. While there, he learned to become an electrician and started using heroin and marijuana. In November 1969, Roy Norris was arrested for rape and attempted rape when he forced his way into a woman's car. He didn't spend much time behind bars, and three months later, he tried to break into a woman's home. U.S. Navy psychologists diagnosed Norris with a severe schizoid personality, and he was given an administrative discharge from the Navy, psychological problems. In May 1970, on the San Diego State University campus, Norris stalked a female student, attacked her, and struck her in the head with a rock. He pounded her head into the sidewalk while he kneed her in the back. Charged with assault and sentenced to five years at Escadero State Hospital, he was diagnosed as a mentally disordered sex offender. After five years, authorities determined he was no further danger to others and released him into the public. It only took three months for him to revert back to his perverted ways when he raped a woman in Redondo Beach. Norris was sentenced to California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo, where he met Lawrence Bittaker. While in prison, Bittaker had saved Norris from attacks by other inmates a few times, and they had become friends. As they grew to know one another, they realized they had many common interests, mostly involving sexual violence towards women. The two discussed how they loved the sight of frightened young women. Bittaker, until this point, had not committed any sexual offenses, but expressed his interest to Norris and stated, if he ever did commit such a crime, he would kill her. He said he wouldn't leave a witness to the crime. During their time behind bars, their friendship evolved, as did their plots for perversion. They discussed at length how upon their release they would fulfill their fantasies and rape and murder young girls. One for each age between 13 and 19 years old. Bittaker was released first in October 1978. He was a skilled machinist and was earning $4,000 a month, quite a sum for that time and especially so for a convicted felon only a few months out of prison. He was living in a Burbank motel and was very popular with the local teenagers. It was well known that he always had beer and pot available. Norris was released three months later in January and moved in with his mother in Redondo Beach. He started working as an electrician in Compton, and it wasn't long before he got a letter from Bittaker. They met in February and planned their mayhem. The first order of business was to buy a van. If you've heard the term serial killer van, this is possibly where the term came from. The duo purchased a 1977 GMC cargo van in February 1979 with no side windows and a large sliding door, just like the cliché. They would name their killing machine Murder Mac. For three months, the couple cruised up and down the Pacific Coast Highway from Redondo Beach up to Santa Monica. Perfect Southern California weather and beach communities meant lots of young girls on their way to the beaches. And during that time, they would stop and talk to girls, offer them pot, 
offer them a ride, party, have some beer, and take Polaroid photos. It was all just a practice run for their bedlam. They picked up 20 girls just for the sake of practicing their routine, to get the girls into their van voluntarily. Once they were confident that they could do this, they built a bed in the back of the van. Beneath the bed, they stored a cooler with beer and soda to lure the girls, a toolkit for torture items, and clothes to change into after theirs were soaked with the blood of their victims. Next, they searched for a location, somewhere secure, somewhere private. Just beyond the San Gabriel Mountains, they found an old fire road. They broke the lock on the gate and replaced it with their own. It was go time. They were on the hunt. June 24, 1979, Cindy Schaefer was just 16 years old when her grandmother dropped her off at St. Andrew's Church in Redondo Beach for a fellowship meeting. Cindy only stayed for 20 minutes and then decided to walk home. On her walk home, Bittaker and Norris pulled up to her and asked if she needed a ride. No thanks. They tried again and offered her some marijuana. No thanks. She kept walking. They pulled up ahead of her and parked. Norris opened the sliding door to the van and pretended to get something out of the back. While she walked by, Norris grabbed her and threw her into the van. Bittaker cranked the stereo to full volume to muffle the screams while Norris gagged her and bound her feet and legs. This became their modus operandi of acquiring victims. Bittaker drove the van up to the San Gabriel Mountains to their secret hideout. Once there, Norris told Bittaker he wanted some time alone with Cindy. Bittaker agreed and wandered off into the mountains while Norris raped her. During the night, the two took turns raping and torturing her. Cindy asked if they were going to kill her, and Norris replied, No. Then she begged, If you're going to kill me, please just let me pray. They declined her request. Bittaker later recalled that Cindy displayed a magnificent state of self-control and composed acceptance of the conditions of which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming. When it came time to kill her, the two apparently argued as to who was going to kill her, both wanting the other one to do it. Norris lost and was chosen to finish the task. Norris tried to strangle her with his bare hands, but after 45 seconds, became physically disturbed by the look in her eyes and released his grip. He ran to the front of the van and threw up, false teeth and all. Bittaker took over. He tried to strangle her as well, but apparently strangling the life out of a person was much harder than either of them imagined. Cindy slumped to the ground and began convulsing. He then grabbed a coat hanger from the van and put it around her neck. With a pair of pliers, he began twisting the ends, twisting and twisting until she eventually died. Bittaker found a steep cliff and the two of them wrapped her body in a plastic shower curtain and threw her off. Bittaker assured Norris that the animals would eat any evidence of a body. Meanwhile, Cindy's grandmother calls police when she doesn't arrive home, but without a body and no evidence of foul play, the police are at a loss. 
Just two weeks later, on July 8, 1979, Bideker and Norris were cruising the Pacific Coast Highway looking for their next victim when they spotted 18-year-old Andrea Hall hitchhiking in Manhattan Beach. As they slowed to offer her a ride, another car slowed at the same time and she got into their car instead. The two followed the car and once the first car had dropped her off at Redondo Beach, they offered her a ride and she accepted. This time, Bideker was driving, but Norris was hiding in the back, ready to strike. Once Andrea got in the van, Bideker offered her a drink. When she accepted, he told her to go get one out of the cooler in the back. Norris lay in wait. Norris grabbed her, and again, Bideker turned up the volume on the radio while Norris tried to subdue her. Andrea was a strong girl and put up quite a fight, but eventually Norris overpowered her, gagged her, and bound her wrists and ankles. All the while, Bideker drove to their secret location. Once they arrived, Bideker raped her twice and Norris once. Norris thought he saw the headlights of a car, so they decided they would drive further into the mountains and continue. Andrea screamed and pled for her life, but her cries only empowered them. Bideker forced her to walk alongside the van, naked, uphill, then perform fellatio and pose for Polaroids. Norris drove back to town to get alcohol, and when he returned, Bideker had already killed her. He told her to give him as many reasons as she could to live, then he shoved an ice pick into each of her ears. It wasn't enough to kill her, so he strangled her and threw her over a cliff. Andrea's sister and brother-in-law reported her missing, but again, police had nothing to go on. The killers took a two-month break and, on September 3rd, spotted 15-year-old Jackie Gillum and 13-year-old Leah Lamp sitting on a bus stop bench near Hermosa Beach. The girls had been hitchhiking, and Bideker and Nora stopped to offer them a ride to the beach. The young girls accepted. It wasn't long before Leah realized Bideker was driving away from the beach, not toward it. Bideker gave the excuse that they were looking for a place where they could park and smoke some pot. Leah didn't buy their story and reached for the sliding door and tried to jump out. Norris had a bag full of BBs and quickly hit her over the head with it and threw her back into the van. When a bystander at the public tennis court noticed the altercation, Bideker told the man she was just having a bad LSD trip, and they drove off. Bideker drove back to their private location, and the two started the chaos. Neither of them was interested in Leah because they thought she was overweight, and instead they focused on Jackie. Bideker took out his cassette recorder because he wanted to record his first rape of a virgin. He commanded Jackie to pretend like she was enjoying it. Norris went one step further when he raped her and told her to pretend like he was her cousin. That night, Norris and Bideker took turns standing watch while the others slept next to the girls. In the morning, they took Leah up a hill and told her to strip naked. They then took photos of her in sexual positions, tied her up, and left her. Bideker again turned his focus back to Jackie and shoved an ice pick into her head and strangled her, just like he did to Andrea. Leah again tried to escape, but before he could, Bideker struck her in the head with a short-handled sledgehammer, knocking her out. He then strangled her. To make sure she was dead, Norris beat her in the head. Both girls were reported missing by their families, but like the girls before them, 
Police had no bodies and nothing to go on. Another two months passed, and the two men were out on Halloween when Bittaker saw a girl he knew. 16-year-old Lynette Ledford was standing outside of a gas station. She had left a Halloween party in Sunland Tajunga near Los Angeles. She had fought with some boys at the party and was now headed home. Bittaker offered her a ride. Bittaker was a regular at the McDonald's where she worked, so she accepted the ride. Bittaker was impatient. Rather than driving to their fire road location, he decided to do this one on the move. He drove down a deserted suburban street where Norris drew a knife. He then bound and gagged her with duct tape. The two men switched places and Norris drove aimlessly around the streets for over an hour. Bittaker, in the back with Lynette, carried out the most vicious rape yet. Bittaker turned on the tape recorder to record everything while he beat her, raped her, and forced her to fillet him. He forced her to say that she liked it through the cries and screams. He then ripped apart her clitoris, rectum, labia, and nipples with a pair of pliers from his toolbox. By the time it was Norris's turn to rape her, there was nothing left but bleeding orifices. He forced her to fillet him while he beat her elbow over and over again with the sledgehammer. Norris encouraged her to scream louder and louder. He beat her 25 times on the elbow, and each blow can be heard on the recording along with her blood-curdling screams. The tape recorder is turned off, and Norris strangles her to death with a coat hanger, twisting it until it was only slightly larger than a silver dollar. We've all heard women scream in horror films. Still, we know that no one is really screaming. Why? Simply because an actress can't produce some sounds that convince us that something vile and heinous is happening. If you ever heard that tape, then there is just no possible way that you'd not begin crying and trembling. I doubt you could listen to more than a full 60 seconds of it. Roy Norris describing the recording of that night. Believing they were above the law and immune to prosecution, Bittaker decides to dump the body publicly. He chose a random residential front yard to dump the body. He wanted to see the reaction of the public and the authorities when the body was found. A jogger found the body early the next morning with a coat hanger still around her neck. The press, police, and Los Angeles residents were terrified. The murder hunt began but it would be three weeks before they would get another clue. The next month, Roy Norris visited an old friend from the California men's colony, Joe Jackson. Norris had spoken to Jackson in the past about his fantasy of raping young girls. Norris felt comfortable talking to him about his exploits with Bittaker since their release. He included all the graphic details of the most recent victim, Lynette Ledford. At this time, Lynette's was still the only body that had been found. Jackson was an ex-convict, but he was also the father of two young girls. The gruesome details of Norris and Bittaker's killings did not sit well with him. Jackson contacted his attorney, who in turn informed the police. The case was assigned to Detective Paul Bynum of the Hermosa Beach Police Department. The police brought Jackson in for questioning, and he told Bynum about the van. His description of the van matched a description given by a girl that had been raped two months prior. The victim of this rape, Robin Robeck, now lived in Oregon. 
Detective Bynum revisited Robin, and she immediately picked out Norris and Bittaker from a photo lineup. Roy Norris was put under surveillance and was easily caught when officers could see him from the street weighing marijuana and putting it into baggies for sale. Police arrested Norris on parole violations of possessing drugs and dealing marijuana. Police searched a car that Norris owned and found photos of young women, but Norris claimed none of those girls were harmed. The same day, while police were still at Norris's home, Bittaker called and an officer answered the phone. Pretending to be one of Norris's friends, the officer tried to lure him in, but Bittaker, with his 138 IQ, didn't fall for it. He immediately drove to a cemetery in the Hollywood Hills and buried the torture tapes. He then returned to the motel room in Burbank where he was living and was immediately arrested. Bittaker was surprisingly cooperative when arrested and handed over several Polaroid photographs. Many of the photos were of Andrea Joy Hall and Jackie Gillum. Both men initially claimed to be innocent, but when police found the van, there was just too much evidence to deny. They found over 500 photos of young women, two necklaces from the victims, a book on how to find police broadcasting frequencies, a sledgehammer, a jar of Vaseline, a plastic bag full of lead weights, and most damning of all, the tape from the final killing of Lynette Ledford. The tape was played for Lynette's mother, Shirley, and she confirmed it was her daughter's voice. In Bittaker's motel room, investigators also found seven bottles of acidic liquids. The killers apparently had plans to step up their game with the next victims. Detective Bynum and Deputy District Attorney Stephen Kay interrogated Roy Norris. When faced with the mounting evidence, Norris decided to take a plea deal. He pled guilty for his role in the killings and agreed to testify against Bittaker. In exchange, he was offered a reduced sentence, meaning no death penalty nor life without parole. Bittaker, however, admitted to almost nothing. Bittaker was charged with five counts of first-degree murder, robbery, kidnapping, forcible rape, sexual perversion, and criminal conspiracy. Norris was charged with the same, except one of the first-degree murders was reduced to a second-degree murder charge. Norris then led investigators to the fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains. He showed them exactly where each killing took place. During the interrogation, Norris spoke of the murders in a casual, uncoerced manner, like a mechanic would explain a problem with your car. No emotion at all. Upon searching the San Gabriel Mountains, police were able to recover the bodies of Jackie and Leah, but the bodies of Cindy and Andrea were never found. Jackie's skull still had an ice pick lodged in it, and Leah's skull showed multiple indentations from the blows of a hammer. During the trial, the most damning evidence was the audio tape of the horrible torture that Lynette Ledford endured. Courtroom attendees were seen running from the courtroom in tears, visibly shaken by the vile recording. Deputy District Attorney Stephen Kay could barely speak to reporters without breaking into tears just after the playing of the tape. Many of the details from the transcription of that tape have been left out of this story simply because of the disgusting nature of it. On March 18, 1980, Roy Norris pleaded guilty to all four counts of first-degree murder, second-degree murder, Andrea Joy Hall, two counts of rape, 
and one count of robbery. May 7th was his sentencing. Roy Norris was sentenced to 45 years to life with parole eligibility in 2010. Norris decided not to attend his parole hearing in 2010 and has another parole eligibility in 2019. On February 17, 1981, Lawrence Bittaker was found guilty on all five murder counts and was sentenced to death. Due to California legal changes, Bittaker was never actually put to death and will most likely die in prison of old age. He is currently in San Quentin prison and sometimes responds to letters from the public which he signs with the nickname Pliers. Thanks for listening to True Crime Sleep Stories. If you aren't asleep yet, consider following the show. Maybe our next story will give you the peace of mind you desperately need. Or not.